Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm. And on today's show, we do a deep dive on the recent rule proposal from the SEC on predictive data analytics, PDA technologies, and some of the significant compliance challenges associated with that rule proposal and the pushback we've seen from the industry. In our headline section, and in record-breaking time this year, we'll review the 2024 SEC examination priorities pushed out by the Division of Examinations. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of History Has Your Back, where a famous story involving a renowned anthropologist gives us a little insight into the mark of where civilization begins, and perhaps a little insight into the mark of a good compliance program. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, on October 16th, 2023, the Securities and Exchange Commission's Division of Examinations released its 2024 examination priorities to inform investors and registrants of the key risks, examination topics, and priorities that the division plans to focus on in the upcoming year. This year's examinations will prioritize areas that pose emerging risks to investors or the markets in addition to core and perennial risk areas. The Division of Examinations plays a critical role in protecting investors and facilitating capital formation, said Chair Gary Ensler. He also said, quote, in examining for compliance with our time-tested rules, the division helps registrants understand the rules as well as ensures that markets work for investors and issuers alike. The division's efforts, as laid out in the 2024 priorities, enhance trust in our ever-evolving markets, end quote. The Division of Examinations Director Richard Best also said, quote, continuing to make our examination priorities public increases transparency into the examination program and encourages firms to focus their compliance and surveillance efforts on areas of potentially heightened risk to retail investors. He went on to say, quote, we hope that aligning the publication of examination priorities with the beginning of the SEC's fiscal year will provide earlier insight to registrants, investors, and the marketplace of adjustments in our areas of focus year to year. In the annual report itself, the Division of Exams identified current risks for investors and registrants that highlighted some of those key areas that they are going to focus on for examination in 2024, but specifically calling out the few fo- uh, the, the, the following focus areas and priorities. First, examinations of investment advisors and investment advisors to private funds with a focus on compliance programs. Some of the sub-areas underneath that specific area included marketing practices, compliance with the reform forms, of course, the 20641, the Marketing Rule, and the U.S. Investment Investment Advisors Act, and the disclosure of such marketing information on Form ADV with additional scrutiny on the advertisements themselves. In addition, they plan to look at compensation arrangements, focusing on fiduciary obligations of advisors, alternative means of maximizing revenue, and fee breakpoint calculation processes. In addition to that, they talked about valuation assessments of investment recommendations for illiquid or difficult to, vol- to, to value assets, where the advisor can controls that they have in place to protect clients' material non-public information, and disclosure assessments to review regulatory filings, including Form CRS, especially considering inadequate or misleading disclosures and registration eligibility. Some other big areas of focus include examinations of registered investment companies, RICs, including mutual funds and exchange-traded funds, 
quote, due to their importance to retail investors. They further went on to talk about examinations of broker-dealers related to regulation best interest, form CRS, financial reporting rules, and trading practices. They also talked about exchange order handling, surveillance and enforcement at the national security, uh, the national securities exchanges, and risk-based oversight examinations of FINRA and the MSRB. And finally, they talked about risk management of liquidity, models and model validation, margin systems, third-party service providers, operations, and examination areas at clearing agencies. The division said it would also focus on other market participants, including municipal advisors, security-based swap dealers, and transfer agent. It went on to say it would prioritize specific areas that cross a variety of market participants, including things like information security and operational resiliency, digital assets and emerging technologies, read, i.e., crypto and fintech, and regulation systems compliance and integrity, regulation SCI, and finally, they're going to take a look at anti-money laundering issues. So what are some of the key practical takeaways in looking at the examination priorities for 2024? Well, I think one thing, there's no mention of ESG, as there has been in past years, both in 2022 and 2023. And in this uh, this release, you don't see really any mention of it. In addition, we've lost some of the kind of other significant focus areas that we've seen in the past, including singling out topics like private funds, ESG, which I just mentioned, and some of the new rules, like the marketing rule. Um, Rather, we don't seem to see any kind of particular emphasis or focus on that stuff for 2024. Finally, it looks like the Division of Examinations is really getting back to one of its core tenets, which is to focus on retail investors. In recent years, we've seen quite a bit of hoopla in the private fund space, and certainly private funds are still going to be featured prominently as they are here in the 2024 priorities. But this year's priorities really start with a lot of the kind of more traditional retail related themes, including things like senior investors and retirement savers. One of the more interesting things that was new to this year's list of priorities relate to AML procedures and compliance with the Bank Secrecy Act. The division will continue to review AML programs to determine if firms are tailoring such programs to unique AML risks that might be associated with their business models. They're going to look at conducting independent testing and establishing a customer identification program, including meeting suspicious uh, transaction uh, report filing obligations. Finally, the the division will review whether broker-dealers and advisors are complying with any OFAC or Office of Foreign Assets Control Sanctions. The SEC has really demonstrated its commitment to continuing to police the AML area through enforcement actions, including an unusual case recently against a registered representative for failing to elevate red flags of suspicious transactions in a customer account, which which resulted in his firm failing to file the required SARs. As we move into the interview section of today's show, I am incredibly pleased to be joined by a securities law expert and former SEC regulator, Dahlia Bloss, who's here to talk about the new predictive data analytics rule proposal from the SEC. Dahlia is the senior investment management partner and a partner in Essen in Sullivan and Cromwell's Financial Services Group. Her practice focuses on providing strategic and regulatory advice to asset managers, registered and private fund boards, and their service providers across the range of regulatory governance, compliance, examination, and enforcement matters. She has a unique and deep expertise in the intricate legal risk and compliance issues raised by existing and new regulations, one of the reasons we're so excited to have her here today, 
and under both the Investment Company Act and the Investment Advisors Act, including with respect to the design and structuring of innovative fund products and addressing challenging governance matters. She previously worked at BlackRock, where she was also a senior managing director. And prior to BlackRock, Ms. Bloss served as the director of the Division of Investment Management at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Under uh, her leadership at the SEC, the Division of IM finalized more than 70 regulatory initiatives to modernize the regulatory framework for investment companies and investment advisors, improve the investor experience through modernized disclosure and outreach efforts, elevate the standards of conduct for financial professionals, and reevaluate the role and responsibilities of fund boards and directors. Dahlia, it is such a pleasure to have you here on the show today to discuss this incredibly important topic. Thank you so much for joining us. Patrick, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, wonderful to be here, and I look forward to our discussion on this proposal. Yeah, so let's let's dive right in, because I think there's certainly plenty to talk about with regard to this rule proposal. So for those of us that were keeping score, it was the summer months, so maybe some of us might, might have been on vacation during the time, but at the end of July, on July 26th, 2023, the SEC proposed a rule regarding uh, conflicts of interest associated with the use of predictive data analytics by broker dealers and investment advisors. And I'm, there may be some of the you know listeners here who are familiar with the rule, but maybe for some of those folks that aren't as familiar with the rule proposal, a high level, what does the SEC rule proposal say, and you know what what do you think the SEC was uh, trying to uh, accomplish or trying to kind of start to get their arms around with regard to the rule proposal? You know, when you look at the rule proposal, it actually tracks some of these statements that we had heard from uh, Tier Gensler. He has spoken previously several times about the use of technology by broker-dealers and investment advisors and the potential for conflict to be embedded in the use of that technology when it comes to interactions with investors. So what this rule proposal does, that the target of this rule proposal is to look at the conflicts of interest that could be associated with the use of predictive data analytics and find ways to make sure that these conflicts are being ad addressed by the brokers or the advisors. So that, you know, at, at its core, it is about understanding the conflicts and managing these conflicts with respect to these technologies. Got it. And I think to also help level set, I, I think, you know, there were parts of the rule and I really appreciate that context because that helps lay some of the foundation of some of the items we'll, we'll certainly talk about. But there's obviously been an onslaught of different rulemaking that's been coming out over the last several years. This uh, falls in line with, again, some of the other kind of key focus areas. Uh, we recently just did an episode of the podcast looking at uh, the SEC's new private fund rules, uh, among other things. But I think like some of the other uh, recent uh, proposals and other rulemakings that are currently outstanding, it seems like there are some potential issues or some challenges that registrants might face with the rule kind of as it is currently constructed. And so I guess just at, at a high level and maybe even before we get into some of the specific issues or challenges that you have, you know, what, what was your reaction? to the, the rule proposal and generally, and then maybe we can start to dig into some of those, what some of those issues would tell. So, so Patrick, as, as I said, like if, if you step back, you can understand in, in principle what the SEC is trying to do here. There is this rise of new types of technology 
And it is absolutely not, you know, um, not out of the ballpark for the SEC to be looking at this rise of new technology, try to understand um, what what it means, if there are any potential issues with it when it comes to you know, how a brokerage or advisors interact with investors and then see, you know, how to address that. The issue with this proposal, if you step back and look at it, is, and, and despite the fact that this was actually, um, you know, previously thought, you know, prior to the proposal, there was a request for information on the part of the, of the commission. When you look at it, it is incredibly broad. And, I mean, if this is supposed to cover technology, cover technology in the, you know, when there's an investor interaction, and both the term covered technology, the terms covered technology, and the terms in investor interaction, when you look at them, there is no line. It's everything. I mean, instead of having, I mean, when, if you read through the definition of covered technology in the rule release, it's a very long list of stuff. And I could just replace that with one word, everything. You know, I think Excel, I mean, if, if you take it to its like logical end in terms of how broad it is, an Excel spreadsheet is covered. That is not technology. Um, investor interactions are not limited to situations where brokers or advisors are actually interacting with the investor to provide them with investment advice or recommendations. It is steps beyond, you know, before that. So when when you look at that and you look at the coverage and you look at what you know the SEC is trying to achieve with this conflict of interest in this proposal in terms of addressing them. It just becomes too much from a practical compliance perspective. And I think that is an issue that, you know, a lot of the folks I have been speaking with, and when I look at it, um, that is something people will grapple with if the, you know, adoption of this proposal is anywhere remotely close to what we are seeing here on paper. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I appreciate you mentioning that part of it because I definitely think that in some of the kind of anecdotal uh, reactions that I've heard from other folks um, in the space, it was a lot of those kind of broad-based definitions of you know uh, investor interaction and covered technologies and other stuff, and we'll we'll get into even further specifics of that, especially when we talk about too how maybe conflict of interest was defined in the rule. I think that's another important point, but. Talk to me about, because I think another uh, key issue that a lot of other folks had with the rule proposal and, and some of the other stuff that we're hearing is with regard to the statutory authority to really even uh, propose the rule, what statutory authority did the commission rely on in the rule proposal? Um, and do, do you see any issues with relying on that particular statutory authority? So this is really an, an interesting piece. So the commission uh, relied on sections 211H of the Advisors Act and an identical section in the Exchange Act uh, 15L. So and those two sections were added to both acts, you know, in, in, in Dodd-Frank, and they were added in the section 913 um, that essentially is about the um, standards of conduct for advisors and brokers with respect to retail investors. And this, those two particular sections, they're titled other matters. So you had this whole section talking about, you know, you know, giving the commission authority to adopt standards of conduct for brokers and advisors. And then you have this catch-all at the very bottom, other matters. And when you read it, it really is about authorizing the commission to engage in additional related rulemakings 
to further the standard of conduct. Other matters, it is so, you know, so, so small and so at the end that when you look at legislative history, there was no discussion about, around it. So when you look at that, you look at the wording, you look at the title, you know, how can the weight of a proposal such as this be carried by this statutory section? It's hard to imagine. And the other piece, too, which is really interesting for us to be thinking about, is that, you know, this particular section and the commission's use of it in terms of uh, pushing out rulemakings to um, uh, you know, address behaviors, um, put prescriptive elements in place, is right now actually in court. Um, because that was also the section, one of one of the sections that the commission used when it proposed and adopted the private fund advisors rule. And, and again, there was a lot of pushback about the breadth of the statutory authority in the section, whether commission can use it. So we are also all watching um, how the court is going to rule in, you know, in that matter, because it is going to impact this proposal, uh, depending on where, where the court goes. And you know, the one other thing, you know, when, when you think about the statutory authority, given the fact, you know, that before the commission proposed this, if you look at the private fund advisor rulemaking, the comment file, which predated this, there was a lot in there about how can you rest these big proposals on this little statutory you know, section that's titled other matters. And yet with even with that, in this proposal, you don't really see a good, robust discussion of why the SEC thinks it has authority under this one small other matter section to adopt such an expansive set of rules. Yeah, I definitely think that there are, uh, as you mentioned, a number of folks that are uh, are probably listening to this podcast that would uh, agree with that um, and and have had a hard time uh, with again a lot of the uh, recent rulemakings, but certainly in this case even different than some of the others. There uh, there hasn't been the same kind of level of discussion around that specific point, and I think that that would be something that a lot of registrants would be very, very interested in. You mentioned something at the top a moment ago, and, and we started to even get into the, the definitions of covered technologies and kind of what's included there, and, and, and as well kind of thinking about, you know, what constitutes an investor interaction. You know, it, it seems like you mentioned how broad-based the uh, the definitions were in the rule, and it feels like m maybe there's a, a little bit of I, I don't know how to describe it a, a feeling among the SEC that they they're um, uh, not entirely sure of how to approach this space. And there's you know in the the comment letter that you know you submitted to the SEC on the specific issue, we talked about kind of a war on technology, and and it certainly seems like in some cases, and in, in this one, like maybe. Um, that type of approach would inhibit a lot of people from even participating in the space. What are you, you know, how, how, in regards to the rule proposal, you obviously mentioned how incredibly broad it was, too broad in some areas. Do you see this as kind of uh, inhibiting other registrants from getting involved, from trying to develop innovative technologies uh, to continue to evolve with the financial markets? So, you know, let's, um, there, there are a few points here I think that would be important for us to sort of, you know, lay out. Number one, just technology. 
you know, and its and its importance here. So when you look at what technology has done in our space, um, and you know, in 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 the buy and the sell side space, it has been incredible. It delivers um, efficiencies, which ultimately means more money in the pocket of the investor, um, because brokers and advisors are able to leverage technology to you know to manage their businesses, manage conflicts, manage um, compliance. In fact, it's you, you know even technology is part of product development, right? I mean, this is how it's about cost efficiency and it's about access to markets because you know with with the marrying of technology with the buy side and and sell side and you know and, and our entire sort of financial services space, you are able to do more for the investor and provide investors with products that are cheaper, which means that more investors can access the market. So, you know, it's really important to, first of all, appreciate the power of technology in our space and what it has delivered to the American Main Street investor, American investor in general. So that's one piece. And then you have the other piece of like a commission and frankly, you know, not just this commission. Um, It's just been historically a commission that has not been friendly towards technology. Uh, and, you know, in, in that space, I, you know, just one example is e-delivery. Unlike other spaces in financial services, like the broker dealers and investment advisors are still nowhere near um, in terms of like other like insurance companies or banks. Um, you know, e-delivery is still a conversation we're having at the, you know, with the SEC, which Frankly, in this day and age, it's kind of mind-boggling that you know we, we should be talking about how to enhance apps as opposed to like let's stop delivering you know um, eight-point font PDFs to investors when everybody relies on you know a little iPhone or, or, or iPad. And so you, you have that one, and then you also have that you know a current commission you know honestly an, an increased level of hostility towards technological innovation, um, be it in you know for digital assets or electronic communications or you know the distributed ledger technology. You know you are seeing a commission that is resisting this technological innovation, not just by enforcing existing laws, you know frankly in some cases outdated laws. But also adding regulation that makes it really difficult for regulated institutions to enhance their systems and continue providing these efficiencies to customers and clients. And now in the area of the predictive data analytics, frankly, whatever that means, because, you know, as we said, the definition is just way too broad, you know, you have here you know, a commission that's just using a promise, a potential for technology like, you know, PDA, like AI to try to, you know, really change the regulatory, that current regulatory ecosystem, you know, in in my opinion, without the notice and comment that we would need. So you have a lot here in terms of a commission that, um, you know, I, I appreciate the point of the proposal, like the policy issue is something we can all understand. Is there with this rise of new types of technology, is there a conflict of interest and how do you address it? But there is that middle point of like, what's the conflict? Do existing regulations address it? You know, why or why not? Before we start going into expansive rule proposals that can take away the benefits of technology. So yes, there could be issues, but let's understand what the issues are and if they're addressed, and do a cost benefit because the last thing we want is something that frankly would raise the cost so much would be so onerous would be so complex that you know it will not enable um, you know smaller broker dealers and advisors to compete 
and also become a significant barrier to entry for anybody wanting to come into this space. That will stop innovation. That will get in the way of cost efficiencies. That is not going to be money in the pocket of investors. And that would be my concern with how this is being laid out. You, you raise such great arguments there, two, two of which stand out to me in, in really meaningful ways, which is, you know, one, there's a lot of language in the rule proposal that absolutely would start to serve as barriers to entry for some of the smaller to more mid-sized broker dealers and investment advisors who are looking to get involved in the space. And the, and the other one that I think is important to note, and again, you know, we all utilize technology in uh, pretty much every part of our life, right? At, at this point, and and it's something that you you at least I, I try to integrate rather than to say, well, I can't have technology at this point or or, or at other times, but. It, not of the uh, a lot of the innovation that uh, investment advisors and broken dealers and other companies are using technologies for ultimately benefit the investor. It, it, it's not the, the technologies aren't just there to uh, enhance uh, their you know pocketbook and and do other things. A lot of times the ways that they're gaining efficiencies and other stuff like that uh, do provide significant benefits to the investor themselves. And, and right by stifling innovation in some areas or making the cost of compliance so burdensome in some areas, you're not only hurting people from potentially getting involved in the space, but ultimately there could be investors that ultimately don't get the same kind of access to information and education and other types of stuff that are going to help them engage in the financial markets, which ultimately I know is, is one of the goals of, of the SEC and the commission itself. Yeah, no, no, you know, I I think it's that's a point that you know we we cannot you know underscore um, sufficiently, especially with when you look at the what I would call the new investor that will be coming into the market. So you know, I, I am of an age where you know I can sit there reading all these papers. I don't necessarily need an app, although I like it. I don't necessarily need an app um, to to invest. But, you know, I, I look at my children who are going to be, you know, actually my, my oldest, he's right now in college, he opened his a brokerage account, he's interested in investing. He is of an age and, um, you know, a generation where if it's not readily available to him on his iPhone and in a way that's interactive and really speaks to him, by the way, he's a computer science major, so it really has to be interactive and speaks to him. You know, we're not going to get these investors to come into the markets, and that would be a shame because our, you know, our capital markets are some, you know, the most resilient, um, you know, markets um, in in the world, um, and they provide so much in terms of opportunities for, um, you know, for investors to, you know, reach their financial goals. So this is not just about compliance. It's not just about conflicts. When you look at technology, and by the way, it's not even just about using it to manage uh, conflicts or to manage risks. It really is about making sure that this next generation of investors stay with us, uh, that they are interested in becoming investors, that they come into the market and continue to benefit from the richness that we have in the U.S. capital market. So that's another piece I think we need to underscore is that you cannot be putting regulations in place that not just harm the brokers and the advisors, but also ultimately become a roadblock to investors coming into the markets. Yeah, no, I, I, 
appreciate you you know underscoring that that point because that is definitely something that i think can get lost oftentimes in the rulemaking process and especially thinking of the the next generation of investors that we don't want to disenfranchise from wanting to be involved and to participate you know another part of the rule that i think really i heard a lot of feedback on because it seemed novel at the time relates to how conflicts of interest were defined. And I think that certainly the idea that investment advisors and broker dealers need to mitigate or at times try to eliminate conflicts of interest is something that is a worn path, right? And, and advisors understand that. Oftentimes there's uh, you know lots of disclosure and other stuff that needs to get provided. You need to have to instruct and educate investors and allow them to provide informed consent. But it seemed like conflict of interest was defined somewhat differently in this rule proposal. And so maybe talk to me a little bit about how was conflict of interest defined in the rule proposal? And, and did that definition clash potentially with any of the kind of prior uh, standards of conduct that, that had been articulated by, by the staff? Yeah. So, you know, we've always had in the federal securities laws, like in, in our space here, you know, a certain definition when it comes to conflict of interest, right? And when you look at the how it's worked through in this proposal, it, it doesn't track that. It's it's actually um, not only really vague, but it's 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 not really clear what it means for a technology to take into, um, rather than the firm itself, rather than the broker or the advisor, but the technology to take into consideration the broker or advisor's conflict. So it it's sort of like turns it upside down in a way that it's really, I don't know what that means. So that's sort of the, the, the first step is that it just, it's vague and does it's, it's upside down. And then it takes it like a step too far because it, then it goes into, that any investor engagement, any increase in an investor engagement or transactions is a conflict, period. Why? <laughs> you know, to, to the point you were, you know, making earlier about, you know, it is important for investors to be engaged in this, to to uh, to want to be part of the decision making when it comes to their financial, you know, future, and to want to learn about the markets if they're going to be part of the market. So it's a it's a bizarre twist around, and it, it goes too far. So it's. You know, I mean, essentially, Patrick, anything that makes the investor experience more, you know, you know anything on the part of the advisor or the broker that makes the investor experience more user friendly is a conflict, um, which I don't know how that is a conflict because, you know, as I think of conflict of interest, it's actions or things that are in place that would benefit the advisor and subordinate the interests of the customer or the client. That is not what we just talked about. The other part of it that I think is is really important to to um, you know to, to to underscore here is that usually you know the the conflict of interest um, is you know when you are interacting with with the investor in terms of like giving them a recommendation or giving them investment advice. But here, you don't even need that step. It's several steps before that. You know, how does a broker or an advisor? know when to start this com you know this 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 idea of like the technology you know raising a, a conflict of interest right and then and then a piece you touched on which is really important so you know when you look at you know regulation best interest or the investment advisors fiduciary duty um, you really you know either you know eliminate mitigate or disclose 
And that disclose has always been a key, key piece of conflicts of interest. And why? And not because, by the way, not because like, you know, we're giving advisors or broker dealers an easy way out. But it's in recognition that this is a principal agent relationship, principal agent relationship. You know, you have a situation here where the advisor or the broker, in any time they act vis-a-vis an investor, they are also they are acting for their interests because they are for-profit organizations and they collect fees or you know or they collect fees um, and they make money. It's a principal agent relationship does not mean that they act in a way that raises they cannot act in a manner that subordinates the interests of the customer or client but it's a principal agent relationship there will be a conflict so you know giving that uh, fact and you know there's just we have very complex markets disclosure has always 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 been a way in which you cure this conflict of interest by making sure that the customer or client is fully informed so that they can consent and to this conflict or not, you know, find somebody else if you don't like this particular conflict. Um, you know, I'm, and I'm, I know like I'm, I'm simplifying it, but there is that piece of disclosure. And in here, aside from the fact that the definition is sort of just upside down and, you know, really hard to understand um, and that anything seems to be trigger a conflict, here you're not allowed to disclose or even mitigate. So the standard here is eliminate or neutralize. <laughs> and when you look at the, you know, the plain meaning of neutralize, it's, I think it's eliminate. <laughs> so it's eliminate or eliminate. So you, you, you know, not only did they take away disclosure, but then they inserted this new term without explanation for why neutralize uh, is, is a standard that, you know, we should be adopting here as opposed to the well-worn path with you know, decades of history behind the eliminate, mitigate, disclose. So it's the two pieces, like really changing the definition, expanding it in, in a way that really does not work with the principal agent relationship, and then taking away, um, you know, the ways that you address the conflict and forcing elimination, which by the way, when you, when you have that standard, you combine it with a very broad definition of covered technology, you combine it with a very broad definition of investor interaction, I mean, honestly, I think it's really hard for a broker dealer or investment advisor, if this rule is adopted as is, to be able to service um, their client or customer. Mm -hmm. I am so glad that you mentioned neutralize. That was going to be one of the questions I was going to ask you. I was like, where did this work come from? Like, what, what, where? And, you know, wow, we've got a new addition to the parlance of, of kind of the rulemaking and, and specifically with regard to such an important area like conflicts of interest, uh, where, you know, through other rulemakings and other types of proposals and other stuff, there's obviously been a lot of robust commentary back and forth between the commission and registrants in the space. Um, and you talked about kind of the, long-standing traditions of, again, kind of mitigate, eliminate, you know, make sure to disclose where you can't eliminate. And uh, so I'm, I'm very glad that you mentioned that. And I'm also glad that you started to talk about, too, some of the impact that this particular rulemaking has on some of the other rule proposals, too. And you mentioned Reg BI there. I think that's really important. But that's not the only one, too. And there's certainly, again, there's a lot of rulemaking that's out there right now that people are continuing to track and keep their eye on, certainly uh, for those in the compliance space and, and, and for, some of our, for some of the listeners to the podcast. 
But you know, what what other rule proposals do you see uh, potentially this predictive data analytics rule proposal, uh, you know, potentially impact? So let's um, you know let, let's start, uh, Patrick, with um, a, a point you, you just made. You know, we do have two pieces: existing rules, and then we also have rule proposals. So when you look at the existing rules, if if the commission identifies an area like here, predictive data analytics, where you know there are potential conflicts that could impact investors. The first step is to, in, in my opinion, sort of like how I did it, you know, when I was uh, when, when I was working at the commission and, and you know doing rulemakings, is you look at your current ecosystem, you identify the rules in place that are that cover the ecosystem, and then you see if something is missing. So here you have a lot of rules in place that cover this ecosystem. Um, you have regulation best interests and the advisor's fiduciary duty, which we discussed, and you know the. This proposal does not really tell us why this layer is needed. What is missing in Reg BI or the fiduciary duty that you need this other piece layered on top of it? You know, there's conversation, like there's discussion in the re release about like actual versus potential, and that Reg BI fiduciary is the might, and this is like you know the sort of the actual conflict. I you know reading through it, I I, I struggled with. Why does Reg BI or the fiduciary duty not get you what you need here? Um, and if I'm struggling through it, I mean, honestly, when I read it, all I can see is, and especially how expansive the coverage area here is, my question is, is this a way of overriding Reg BI and the fiduciary duty without the notice and comment that should come along with, you know, if you want to override it, you know, if there is a policy reason to change that that package of rulemaking, and for the sake of full disclosure, I was part of the commission that you know when when we did that, you know there is a way to do it, and that's you know notice and comment. So is this an override because it's, there is no explanation as to what's missing in in those in in those um, you know in, in in those rules? And then you also have other rules, like for example, like the advisors, they have you know two zero six four seven, like the compliance rules, like to make sure that they. Um, you know, um, look at their their obligations under the um, Advisors Act and make sure that they adopt policies and procedures to address their uh, obligations under the Advisors Act. You know, if you look at you know if you combine fiduciary duty and two hundred six four seven, the compliance rule, what is missing here that needs um, this this further step? For broker dealers, um, you have regulation best interests, and you also have FINRA rule 20, 2120, uh, 3120 rather. So if you have you know the FINRA rule that requires broker dealers to identify supervisory controls in areas of trading and sales practices, among other areas, and you know build that out, then and Reg BI on top of that, what's missing? So there's that one piece of what is missing. And this is not the only proposals sort of suffers from that. Like by way of one example, if you look at the safeguarding rule, which amends the custody, you know, it's one where you, you look at the old safeguarding rule, it, you know, it has a lot of interpretive issues. The current rule in the books that led to FAQs that are like way, way longer than right. when the releases. So you're like, yes, I mean, that needs to be fixed. But, you know, what about it needs to be fixed? And can we focus on that? instead of just a complete override of the system. So that both both of these rules are emblematic 
commission identifying an area that needs work, we would agree with that. Like, I, I think anybody can agree that, you know, perhaps we need to understand this better and address it. And then instead of narrowing down, focusing on what needs to be addressed and then building, you know, pr proposals that specifically tailor to that, it's just a completely new thing that we add on. And, the, you know, the issue with that, aside from the costs and all these pieces we discussed, is that every rule, Patrick, regardless of how fantastically written it is, will have unintended consequences, will have interpretive issues, you know, will start as, as you as you build it into your compliance network, you will start seeing the pull and push of problems because you can never anticipate every single issue with a new rule that comes into play. So when, when you have that with like really well-written good rules, it's, you know, throwing a system out, building something from scratch like this without explaining why you need to build this out from scratch becomes a, a pretty big issue. And then the final piece, you know, that you touched on is this is not just like, you know, overriding potentially like existing regulation for reasons that we don't understand. It also conflicts with other either existing or, um, you know, pending proposals. So by way of example, you know, it kind of um, it clashes a little bit with the marketing rule um, because it does cover marketing activities. So, you know, if you have a marketing rule uh, that, you know, is, is pretty comprehensive um, for advisors, why do you need to layer this piece on top of it, too? Why, why do I need to build, a, you know, an event diagram like this, like this thing in the middle, it's intersects, adding a compliance, um, you know, nightmare essentially for compliance professionals as they try to pull these pieces together. Why, why is that okay? The proposal outsourcing. If you are using a third-party provider, the commission has a rule proposal out there about that. And this one also, if you use third-party technology, it covers it. And then there's a footnote in this release that says, yeah, you know, those two kind of intersect. You tell us if there are issues. That's, that, you know, we, no, the commission is supposed to, you know, look at the intersections between current regulations, what's existing, between anything it has in the proposal stage, and put out there its analysis for those of us looking at it to be able to provide appropriate comment so that the commission can fulfill its its mission when it comes to you know um, you know new rules and regulations so there is that fundamental piece of like what's missing in the current why are you overriding or like you know not taking sort of into consideration the intersection the interconnectedness with you know current and and you know propo and, and new proposals and then providing the appropriate notice and comment so that we are able to also provide the appropriate comments so all these pieces come into play here and unfortunately it's not the only rulemaking um as, as we talked it's not the only rulemaking that presents this issue yeah yeah, no, I, that was a fantastic summary of a lot of, I think, the issues and challenges that um, I know a number of restaurants have had uh, just over the last couple of years with not just the the volume and kind of uh, you know frequency of rule proposals, but sometimes it it uh, doesn't always feel like there has been due consideration given to both the existing rules as you described that are in place and where these new proposals might conflict with those rules or the other rule proposals that are also out there and trying to figure out how they're all going to fit together and like you kind of indicated there a little bit i you know i know other restaurants feel that it's incumbent upon them to try to figure it out because as you indicate like you know the 
let us know if you see if there are any cracks in the stuff that we've proposed but but it's really hard as you as you also articulated for people to try to be able to deliver or tell them all of the different ways in which these conflicts might ultimately occur right because there are always even in very well written rules that have had robust public commentary in conjunction with you know internal uh, folks at the commission that are working through and and getting a full lay of the land even then there are these unintended consequences so for those that have already limited resources to, that are trying to come into compliance with again the volume of new rules and other stuff like that for them to also take on that additional burden can be incredibly challenging and, and it kind of leads and you, you also touched on it in your answer there uh, which I you know greatly appreciate as a uh, a compliance nerd myself um, and talking about the kind of costs of compliance here and and I think that is an important point for us maybe just to kind of dive into a little bit and, and specifically you know I, I think if I remember right although I'd, I'd love to, to to get your feedback I think even in the adopting release the Commission, talked a little bit about the cost of compliance and in some cases indicating that it may be incredibly difficult to try to comply with the new rule proposal you know uh, d does the proposal really provide any material details regarding the cost of compliance and you know what what does it talk about as far as implementation goes so you know th this is like a, a really important piece because we don't want to end up in a, in a system which does exist outside the United States where you have you know rules in the books and you're not able to comply with them. That is that is the complete opposite of having you know regulated markets and regulated entities that you know are subject to a robust regulatory ecosystem so that you have the protections in place for, you know, against bad conduct, right? So you really don't want that outcome where you adopt the impossible. And here, um, and, and, I, and I will quote this because this is actually in the proposing release, the commission noted that in certain cases, it may be difficult or impossible to evaluate a particular covered technology or identify any conflict of interest associated with its use or potential use within the meaning of the proposed rules. <laughs> Difficult or impossible. So in here, in the commission itself is recognizing that with the breadth of what it's trying to cover, it could be difficult or impossible for a broker dealer or investment advisor to be able to, you know, identify um, these, these conflicts. And it even goes on to say there may be situations like where, as an example, maybe situations where a firm does not have full visibility into all aspects of how a covered technology functions, such as a firm, um, if the firm licensed it from a third party. How, so if the commission sort of acknowledges that, what is it doing? Right. Um, why are we here? Right. Why are we here? And then let, 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 let's go back to something we, we touched on before, which is, you know, given the, the, the breadth of these definitions and that you don't even need to have an actual, you know, investor interaction that results in a, this tied to a, a, a advice or recommendation, this would cover, you know, if a brokerage or advisory firm has um, educational type materials on its on its website, like you know financial news, so that you know their clients or customers can, and and it's pulled from um, you know from like market sources. It's not it's not commentary. It just really is just you know stuff that you put on the website just to make sure that 
they get the latest, greatest news in terms of um, you know portfolio companies that might be in in their um, in, in their in their accounts. And an investor, you know, which I, in my opinion, is what you want, follows those news, looks at those news alerts, um, and you know, they choose actions in their portfolios based on this educational material. Uh, you know, they sell, buy, hold, you know, all these things. And you know, if they if they if they buy or I mean, there are always brokerage commissions in these transactions, as 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 you know. That would be captured by this rule, which you know really means that firms would have to pull this down. So, because I, I don't know how you'd be able to comply with this rule given this breadth. Like any any action on the part of the investor in this regard, any engagement with their account is a conflict. Right. So it, it's just you know how is how are you going to do if you're a compliance official. How are you going to build a compliance program that neutralizes this conflict, which is an investor action, an investor acting in a way that is, frankly, you should want to encourage, not discourage, in the sense of like being educated on top of the news in the market, so that they are better informed about decisions they are making, um, you know, in, in in their accounts. So, and then you know, you also have the point of, regardless of how. You know, this coverage the most complex of technologies, but also the most simple. As you know, we talked about earlier, like Excel spreadsheets could be covered here. So whether you use a technology in a huge amount in your business or very, very, very little in your business, you're covered here. You're wrapped up here. You have to go through onerous compliance. You know, when you're putting this together, you have to assess it. You have to analyze it. You have to go through conflict elimination. You have to do annual tests. You have to do annual reviews. You have all this record keeping. All this stuff, you know, kicks in regardless of how much technology you use. And it's not just the current use; it's also future use or potential use. I mean, Patrick. I mean, you know, um, I'm not a compliance official, but you know, having talked to a few folks, you know, when we were thinking about this this rulemaking, I know their heads are sort of spinning in terms of how much time and resource they would have to channel into this to be able to comply. And I think that the sad part of it is that there is this sort of, you know, piece that's, you know, even if they go through all these steps, it might be that we, they're not able to comply. And that is a big. Right. You're, you couldn't be more spot on. (laughs) Um, We've received similar feedback from folks who, um, as you say, you know, they have a number of different technologies set up right now that are are almost exclusively for the benefit of the investor that as a result of the rule and the way that it's framed, that they don't think there's any way that they'd be able to appropriately comply. And again, because of the other existing standards of conduct, like Reg BI, like the Investment Advisor Act Compliance Rule, and all these other things where, again, in, in the fiduciary duty that all advisors have, right? there's these other things in place that are already guiding and helping to frame how the uh, uh, they should be interacting with existing clients and with investors. It's been hard for those folks to understand why those standards of conduct aren't already right applying to the activities that are in question, that are there for the benefit of the investors in a way that this new PDA rule proposal is going to do. And to your point, they, they feel uh, completely, uh, I don't know what the right word is, inadequate or, or, or like they have insufficient resources in order to, to continue 
with that technology that's for the benefit of the investor. And so, you know, depending on what, what happens, right, they, they may ultimately, uh, the, the investor may ultimately suffer as a result of not being able to receive a lot of that same wonderful uh, benefit, information, education, and other related content. Absolutely, Patrick. And, you know, I, I think also sort of from, a, from a, a compliance perspective, as well as, as we think about this and how broad it is and how prescriptive, you know, when, when you look at, you know, the compliance rule for investment advisors, by way of example, it, it has certain mandates, you know, in it, like you have to have a chief compliance officer, like, you know, oh, you, you have to do, you know, do these reviews, all, all, all these pieces, but it does not pick out one piece of the program and say, this small piece of the program, you have to build this pyramid around it, right? Um, from Egypt. So it's like the Great Pyramid of Giza has to be built here around, around this. You know, it, you, you look at your business um, as a compliance professional, compliance teams will look at their business, they will look at the regulatory obligations they have, and then they will build a compliance program to make sure that it fulfills the mandates of their regulatory obligations. And here, you just have to funnel, you're going to have to funnel a huge amount of resources into this one piece, way more potentially than any other piece in your business. So instead of looking at your at the conflicts of interest in your business holistically and not conflicts within just that may arise from one area, this you know, technology area, you could be pulling resources, time and attention away from real conflicts that need to be addressed. So, you know, this is not just about all these pieces we talked about. It's, it's also potentially creating tension within a firm um, because of how much you would need to do to comply with it if adopted as, as, as proposed, that it could actually lead to the what the commission would not want, um, which is other areas not being addressed because of the, you know, compliance cost pull, resource pull, attention pull that this proposal would need to be for you to be able to comply with, given the breadth of the compliance obligations that are embedded in here. So, you know, I, you know, looking at this, um, I, I was, you know, I briefly looked through the comment file. You're seeing a, a very sort of uniform theme in, in large part around like this is too broad. Uh, compliance would be an issue. Commission, what are you trying to do? This needs, you know, frankly, probably the commission needs to go back to a drawing board on this one. I, I don't know how you fix it from proposal to adoption to just go out without giving folks the, pro the proper notice comment, you know, to be able to understand what their obligations would be. So I, I really hope that the commission takes to heart the that the comments so far and, and you know engage in a much more robust um, you know um, just engaged in in a way with market participants stakeholders so that they can better understand um, what this technology is where the push pull is where the real conflicts are do we need more regulation or do existing regulations you know address the, the area again like there is I appreciate the policy issue. But this is really, um, you know, taking it, you know, way too far in terms of imposing regulations that would make it hard for advisors and brokers to deliver value to investors. I think you, I think you articulated that perfectly. I can't sum it up any better. I, I think you did a wonderful job of, of really kind of closing us up there. And and certainly, I would just echo your your thoughts that I I really hope that the staff uh, uh, continues to 
review the comments that are coming in on the proposal and understanding some of the uh, potential issues and challenges that you know broker dealer and investment advisors and ultimately investors may be the the, the way the rules currently proposed that might be to their detriment so dahlia it, it has been absolutely wonderful to have you come on today and share such fantastic insights on this incredibly nuanced and and challenging uh, a piece of sec rulemaking we often say that uh, no good deed goes unpunished in these parts. And so we're done with the tough technical kind of PDA uh, rule proposal questions. But we do like to end with something fun often from our guests. And so, you know, we're getting back into the, the fall season here. A lot of really good uh, TV shows uh, and others are kicking off their new seasons. Maybe what's what's uh, one uh, a really uh, great TV show that you're uh, kind of interested in, in getting back into or or a movie that you recently saw, or even a book that, you, that, that you've enjoyed recently. Patrick, it's college football season. Roll Tide. Um, Alabama's oh. play. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm a huge Bama fan, so fall, one of my absolute favorite things about it is that I get to watch a fantastic college football and then because we are such an awesome team, so many of our great former players are great players in the NFL, like Jalen Hurts. I'm a big fan of Jalen Hurts. So, you know, a big Eagles fan as well. Um, Tua and the Dol I mean, I could keep on going. So it's football season and I love it. <laughs> that is Fantastic. And certainly uh, it warms my heart as well. I, I wish my fighting Irish had had a little bit of a better time getting enough men on the field against Ohio State a couple weeks ago. That would have been that would have been uh, uh, certainly preferred. And, and obviously last week, a tough road loss at, at Louisville. But we're, we're, we're still uh, hoping to play spoiler here this week against USC and, and still shake up the uh, college football playoff picture. Uh, Dahlia, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you today. Would love to have you back on the show here at some point down the road. Thank you so much, Patrick. It was wonderful to have this conversation with you and we're all going to watch and see what the SEC does. But thank you for having me. The final part of today's show features another segment of History Has Your Back. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, this segment represents the part of the podcast where we go back in time to help us better understand the present and help define where we're headed in the future. In today's History Has Your Back, and as the story allegedly goes, many years ago, renowned anthropologist Margaret Mead was asked by a student what she considered to be the first sign of civilization in a culture. The student expect, expected me to talk about maybe fish hooks or clay pots or grinding stones. Instead, Mead said that the first sign of civilization in an ancient culture was a femur, thybrum, that had been broken and then healed. Mead explained that in the animal kingdom, if you break your leg, you die. You cannot run from danger, get to the river for a drink, or hunt for food. No animal survives a broken leg long enough for the bone to heal. A broken femur that has healed is, is evidence that someone has taken the time to stay with the one who fell, has bound up the wound, has carried the person to safety, and has tended the person through recovery. Helping someone else through difficulty is where civilization starts, Mead said, again, according to the story. Now, as a compliance officer, it comes as no shock, that I wanted to do a little bit of digging on this story, and I have to tell you that there is no reliable evidence that 
Anthropologist Margaret Mead said what has been attributed to her here. Rather, internet sleuths have traced the earliest reference to this anecdote to the 1980 book Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, in which the surgeon Paul Brand writes that he was, quote, reminded of a lecture given by the anthropologist Margaret Mead, who spent much of her life studying primitive cultures. Moreover, recent evidence points to the fact that medical behavior that was once only ascribed to humans may actually be found in other species now, too. Chimpanzees, for example, have been observed treating the wounds of other community members by applying insects, and many other species, from elephants to wolves, have been found to practice some form of self-medication. So, apart from whether or not Mead said this, or even whether this type of behavior is exclusive to just humans, this feel-good story certainly highlights one critical aspect of human behavior that is both remarkable for our species, and if looked at under the right lens, a hallmark of good compliance programs everywhere. We can't always prevent bad things from happening, but a hallmark of our humanity is not to run away when bad things occur, but rather to lend a hand and to try to make it better than the way we found it. So it goes inside our firms as well. As we near the end of the year and move into a time of reflection, don't be discouraged if everything didn't go perfect this year in your firm's compliance program. Your abilities as a compliance officer will not solely be judged on preventing bad things from happening, but how you responded to them to help make them better. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Dahlia Bloss, for coming on today's show to share her fantastic thoughts on the SEC's rule proposal covering predictive data analytics technologies and some of the significant compliance challenges associated with the rule proposal. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 